Boom, what up? Hello, bonjour, and hola, real leaders. This is Kevin Edwards, your host here, and I am so excited. You're tuning in to one of our amazing experiences. What you're about to hear is going to be fresh, real, and loaded with inspiration, guaranteed to support your impact journey. So sit back, enjoy the listen, folks share a review afterward, and always keep it real. In five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. And joining us today, folks, we've got a fun guest here on the show today. We've got the founder of Motion Infusion. Please give a warm welcome to Miss Laura Putnam. Laura, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. <laughs> of course. You know, we were just talking backstage about this book recommendation on unbearable lightness and and kind of what, what I'm really picking up from this Laura is the off court things and how they can impact our on court performance we're all humans at the end of the day and you know that means we deal with the challenges of a human at the end of the day so Laura just out of curiosity like what's been your experience about trying to focus on things to make sure that you're as effective as possible as a leader that's a great question. I, you know, I think that there are so many norms that we have in, in the workplace that are frankly outdated. Things like when we come to work, we check our emotions at the door, which are literally impossible to do. And um, so, so much of my work is really about reminding leaders and managers. I've now worked with over 40,000 managers and leaders. I uh, have trained them on the importance of why well-being matters, why they matter in bringing well-being to the workplace. But it is high time that we uh, res resurrect some new norms around how we come to work and remind ourselves that we truly are human beings after all, and we need to re-energize over the course of the day. And we also need to bring our full emotional selves to work. And so a question a lot of the CEOs have right now, especially like in our community is like, how do I communicate how I'm feeling about this conflict that's going on? Like, do you have a take on how we should, you know, go about navigating difficult conversations in the workforce that traditionally haven't been allowed? Well, I think that there's, and when you're talking about conflict, you're talking about the conflict between what we're expected to do and what's actually possible for us as human beings. I'm, I'm actually more talking about the conflict going on in the world, whether it's war or whether it's just things outside. Yeah. How do we address situations? Because that's clearly on a lot of the minds of employees. Yeah, I think that's weighing heavily on many of us, um, whether we're talking about what's happening in Israel um, or what's happening in Ukraine, um, it's impossible to not um, feel the, the weight of that, um, not to mention the fact that we're going through, continue to kind of navigate our ways through the pandemic. So again, I mean, I think that so much of this really begins with just an understanding that uh, naturally, this is on people's minds, and um, not surprisingly, the the statistics that we're seeing around mental health are things like a rise in burnout, a rise in depression and anxiety. And um, so, first and foremost, we need to recognize that. But I think the 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 second thing is that managers and leaders 
you don't have to be mental health experts. That's not what we're asking you to do. We're really asking you more to, to recognize that um, people want to feel appreciated, not just for what they do when they're at work, but for who they are as human beings. And it really is not about being the expert. It's about being a human being and um, thinking less about having to come with all the answers and more about asking good questions that engage people in real conversation. And, and Laura, clearly you've worked with over 40,000 leaders. Like what are some of the common, now we're talking about personal conflicts or challenges that these leaders have when trying to have a conversation or create a space like this? Like what, what are you currently, what are you currently asked or what are you currently hear? Well, one is certainly, you know, wellness is personal, well-being is personal, particularly mental health, um, that those kinds of conversations don't belong in the workplace. And if we look at the statistics now, um, it's just, we have to be talking about these issues. And frankly, a lot of times the, the industries that are most resistant to having these conversations are often the ones who need it the most. So case in point, I'm currently leading a two-year leading mental well-being initiative with a 200-member organization that's in the construction industry, pipeline construction industry. And construction... Uh, it has the second highest rate of suicide of any industry. And so while, the, you know, in a male dominated kind of, you know, suck it up buttercup kind of industry, um, understandably, there's a lot of kind of, you know, fold my arms, lean back, like this doesn't apply to me. I'm not going to talk about this, but um, we have no choice but to begin to have these kinds of real conversations at work. And and how should a, a leader thinking about maybe rolling this out or um, and, and incorporating this into the organization go about that process? Should it be gradual or, hey, guys, we're going to have a nice, uh, you know, vulnerability think tank hour, you know, and, and you're entitled to come uh, or enforced to come? Like, how, how do you recommend leaders roll this out? Yeah, that's a great question. As, as again, particularly with a topic that is so charged like that, I think the first one is just to recognize that um, there has been a fundamental shift in how we look at tackling this taboo topic of mental health in the workplace, one in which historically it's been viewed as let's identify the individuals who are at risk and then connect them with the resources that they need. So in other words, people come to work with pre-existing mental health issues, and um, it's more about kind of identifying what's wrong with the individual and then you know, basically treating them. Now there's a growing recognition that it's really about the workplace itself that is creating mental distress for everyone. And so we really need to be looking at the workplace itself. And this is something that every organization can do right away, um, which is really looking at, do we have issues like toxicity tolerated or work overload or unreasonable time pressure or lack of communication between manager and team members that is actually driving a lot of these mental health issues. And so this is something where we can take action right away. We can start to look at some of those systemic issues. I mean, if we look at something like, for example, healthcare, a lot of the rise in um, burnout rates has to do with patient overload. And so what can we do systemically to start to address those? And then we can start thinking um, after we've looked at it from a, a bigger picture systemic level, then we can start drilling down to more of the one-to-one -one level about, you know, how do we have those difficult conversations when someone is in a, 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 a has re reached a point of crisis. 
this is something that takes a really skilled leader to learn how to do and learn how to balance. And, um, you know, everyone's trying to learn every single day, including myself. I'm sure you are as well, Laura. Um, a question for you, I guess, is you talked about like the overwhelming benefits. What, like paint the picture for leaders like that want to really fully understand how this can impact maybe the lives of their employees, but also like the benefits of, of it for their company. What are some of those uh, stats that you could maybe pull out for us? Well, well-being, very simply put, whether we're talking specifically about mental well-being or overall well-being across multiple dimensions, not only mental, but also physical, social, financial, career, community, that is... A, not only the right thing to do, leveraging every workplace to promote better well-being, but it's also the smart thing to do. So effectively, you give me any metric that matters to your organization, and I will show you how it ties to well-being. So whether we're talking about safety on the job, people cannot practice safety on the job if they are not well. Consider you come to work, you haven't slept the night before, how are you going to be able to really practice safety on the job? Or you're talking about retention, those employees who are not only surviving at work, but thriving at work are 81% less likely to leave. Or you're talking about profitability. Three studies in a row have shown that those companies that invest in comprehensive well-being, they actually outperform those companies that don't. And so the, the, the basically, there is no metric that is not in some way either directly or indirectly tied to well-being because we are human beings after all, and it is human beings who are staffing any company. <laughs> and so we have to pay attention to wellness. And, and I know that this is, and that's a great point, but I, I know that this is uh, obviously very broad for maybe almost any organization. But when you think about like just remote organizations that aren't in-person how have you seen some leaders go about this in a way that really creates that that nice safe space and and safe place mm. to talk about these things and feel like you're really included? That's such a great question. I, I, so first of all, I just want to say one of the things about remote work is that in some ways it has really enhanced our well-being, and in other ways it has really undermined our well-being. So it has enhanced our well-being in the sense that people have more autonomy. And autonomy is one of our deepest human needs. People want flexibility in terms of when they work, how they work, and where they work. And certainly remote work has, has provided that. Now, on the other hand, another one of our deepest needs is the need for social connection, to really, truly feel connected to one another. And it, there is just no doubt that these virtual connections cannot replace in-person connections. And so really the challenge for any leader now that is leading a team in a remote environment is how do they help their team to feel connected when they are virtually connected? And, and you know, there are some interesting strategies that you can use. Uh, one is to think about introducing rituals that help to connect the team. So you might kick off the next team uh, meeting with asking people to share three good things that have happened to them. That can be a way of bringing the team together. Also thinking about some basic things like creating passing time. Often what's happening now is that we just literally have one Zoom meeting after another or one Teams meeting after another, and there's no break in between. So thinking through some logistics like that, we're going to start either five minutes after the hour or we're going to start five, end five minutes before the hour. Those simple kinds of 
tweaks can actually make a, a big difference in people's uh, level of well-being. And then even thinking about doing some things like, okay, instead of ha ha being, you know, having a video meeting, let's convert our next meeting into a walking meeting. Everybody's just going to call in on their phones, get outside, get out into nature, and um, let's have a conversation while we're while we're moving at the same time. And who do you think, in your opinion, is like really on the forefront of this new frontier of remote work or work-life flexibility? Is it the tech companies maybe, you know, giving this, um, I think, what's what's the term I'm looking for? They just had unlimited PTO, um, you know, things like that. Like, who, who's really on the forefront, would you say, of of doing a good job in this area? Another great question. And, you know, I think that tech companies appear as if they are on the forefront and there's lots and lots of bells and whistles around well-being but frankly those bells and whistles really don't account for much it's really more about how the work gets done is it done in a way where people actually feel appreciated for who they are as we talked about earlier but also where people feel like that their quality of life is enhanced and in all candor i see a lot of toxicity in a lot of these technology companies often the ones who are getting the most number of prizes around great place to work or around having lots of wellness offerings. And those wellness offerings are no substitute for how the work gets done. And so it really comes down to more important things like, do people feel comfortable with one another? Do they get along well with one another? Do people feel a sense of purpose in the work that they do? Uh, do they feel valued for the work that they do? Do they have a, a, a good working relationship with their boss? Those are the kinds of things that really matter. And in again, in all candor, I often find that there's a lot of toxicity toxicity tolerated in a lot of these tech companies. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, just from like, you know, we we publish a lot of awards. Now we don't have one of best places to work, but like I'm always curious to learn, Laura, like what would be some of those metrics or questions you would ask someone to determine if they have a great workplace. I love that idea of, you know, having everyone feel valued, but it's tough to kind of measure that. What would you say to that question? Well, there is, you know, a lot of metrics around. There's actually, there's some research around so-called perceived organizational support. I have lots of perceived organizational support from my cat here, Hippie. Yeah, there you see, go. Um, What's up, Hippie? But, <laughs> you know, there are, there are some valid measures that are out there and, um, there's, uh, you know, an undeniable connection between having high levels of perceived organizational support and people performing well at work. Um, certainly psychological safety. There's a lot of longstanding metrics out there. Amy Edmondson's work around that um, is, is valid research. And so you can measure, um, use those metrics that are out there um, uh, to really measure the extent to which people feel supported by the, the and feel the sense that their organization that they work for actually cares about them as a human being. Right. Um, one of the things that uh, we just incorporated here and that uh, is kind of like an ongoing trend I'm hearing among other leaders in the space is a four-day work week. And we're just trying this now. And I've seen, I can only attest from my quick experience, but just any thoughts on a four-day work week, especially for remote workers who are having a hard time, you know, turning it off, if you will. I, I think that's great, as long as there are systems in place in which people actually use it. 
Um, and so, it, you know, it, you were asking earlier about unlimited PTO. That's great if people actually use it. I mean, one of the things that they were finding is that when they, you know, unlimited vacation time, then people ended up taking no vacation time. Um, so it, it just, do you have these programs by name only, or are they actually put into practice? And so much of this really comes down to not only top leaders modeling it, but even more importantly, that those uh, managers, those middle managers are, are, are actually implementing it. And so, um, you know, our work is particularly focused on the role that managers play. And um, so, you know, for example, for every hour that a manager engages in after hours email time likely translates into an added 20 minutes of after hours email time for their team members. And so um, what managers are doing is likely replicated by their team members. Mm. Yeah, that's a big one. That's certainly something I'm taking to heart. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing. Laura, this has been really helpful. How do you do it in your own organization? I'm sorry? How do you like... How do you implement some of these things in your own organization? What do you do that's maybe different? That's a really good question. I mean, I'm a small organization, so um, you know, I'm. It's not as difficult for me to do it. I mean, there's. It really comes down to three simple words: do, speak, and create. We each need to do it ourselves. Uh, create kind of a ripple out effect. Um, we know that there's a lot of research around the so-called social contagion effect. One of the meaning that my behaviors never happen in isolation, rather they create a ripple out effect. Um, they either positively or negatively impact not only my friends, but my friends, friends, and even my friends, friends, friends. And so each of us just by the choices that we make are literally starting a movement, uh, whether that's a good one or a bad one. Uh, depends upon the choices that we we're making. But then the next piece is to speak, is to talk about well-being. And again, this is something that managers in particular need to be thinking about doing with their teams. And then finally, to create systems, rituals, and norms that help to really normalize well-being in the workplace and bring it into how the work that is done rather than having programs that are standalone that are outside of the normal work routine. Very helpful for uh, Laura. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the program today and you know dropping some knowledge here for the audience. Uh, and all of this to you, Laura. What is your definition of a real leader? Oh, that's a great question. I think a real leader is one that uh, first and foremost really knows what their version of me at my best is. And then they manifest that and model it um, and give permission for the people that they serve to become their version of me at my best. Um, and, you know, one of the most impactful leaders and, and one that gives me a lot of inspiration is actually Douglas Conant, who was brought in to turn around Campbell's Soup. And he decided from day one that he was going to be tough on standards and tenderhearted with people. So if we are tenderhearted with ourselves and we really think about what our version of me at my best is and we manifest that, we bring that to the workplace and then we in turn ex extend that invitation to the people that we serve and we do it in a tenderhearted way, then we are in fact a real leader. I like that. And that's the balance, right? That's the difficult balance a lot of leaders have. So thank you so much again for dropping some knowledge today here on the Leaders Podcast for Laura Putnam. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, manifest your best, be tough and tender, 
And always keep it real. Thanks, Laura. Thank you so much, Kevin. Hey, Real Leaders, thanks again for listening to this amazing episode. And if you're someone like me who goes all the way to the end just to make sure I can extract as much information, education, and inspiration out of every single interview, might I suggest you check out our magazine. If you go online to realleaders.com today, you're going to get the first 30 days for free where you're going to be able to access all of our magazines courses and live events from some of the top thought leaders around the world. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com and click the subscribe button in the top right corner to get your free 30-day trial right now. Again, that's real-leaders.com. Thanks again for being a real leader and always keep it real.